you're listening to the hybrid cloud forecast series with host andre tost all right welcome to another episode of the hybrid cloud forecast today i'm very happy to have rama akiraju with us rama is an ibm fellow as everyone else every every other guest on our show is as well thanks a lot for being here with us today rama thank you andre for having me and looks like it's a fun uh, podcast series that you're doing so i'm looking forward to an engaging conversation all right, perfect. So usually we start out with introductions. So maybe if you could tell us a bit more about your background at IBM, kind of your career, and and then ending with what are you working on right now? Sure. As you have introduced Rama Kiraju, I've been with IBM much of my career. I started out uh, in uh, IBM Research at uh, T.J. Watson Research Center in New York, and have worked on a number of things over the years related to business process management and applying AI in various contexts. That is the, that's been the theme i would say most recently i would say before the current role which i'll come to i have um, led the development of some of the ai services for watson the ibm's watson platform related to understanding people better that includes services such as uh, personality insights and sentiment and uh, emotion and uh, communication tone detection and those types of services and uh, presently i'm the cto for ai ops it's a product that we are developing to optimize it operations management with AI infusion. So that's me. All right, cool. And by the way, I did look this up. And just to tell you a little bit of a story, my manager here at IBM, Jerry Como, he told me, Andre, a measure of whether you've made it in your career is whether or not you have a Wikipedia page. Needless to say, I don't have one, but you do. I actually looked it up this morning and it talks a bit about the, the things that you did. And for the most part, it talks about your work on the tone analyzer. So I'd like to poke at that a little more in a bit. But first, maybe since we're talking about definitions and kind of what you do. Obviously, the topic of this podcast is hybrid cloud, right? So maybe you can give us an, uh, some comments on what do you, what your definition or elevator speech about hybrid cloud would be. Hybrid cloud to me is, um, it means customers are able to run their workloads anywhere they want. In, they're not locked to particular vendors platforms on whichever cloud, wherever their workloads are, and they have the flexibility to manage their applications across all of these different cloud environments and, and across these diff different workloads. That's to me is hybrid cloud. Okay. So that's a definition of hybrid cloud that talks about location, right? So then usually I follow up with the question of how does that impact or does it impact the style of application? Obviously, we've come a long way from how applications used to be built decades ago to how they're built in what we call cloud native ways today. So in your in your opinion, and also I want to get into this whole AI ops topic, in your opinion, do applications applications have to be cloud native to be suited for the hybrid cloud? Well, ideally, yes. But uh, the reality of it is that's not where you know we we are and that's that's not where we will be as a as an IT industry or or even community across various industries anytime soon right because applications have been written over decades of time and they had been in production and they're doing their job and they're working fine and they're running on you know the virtualized environments they're running on uh, different kinds of mainframes and on premises and servers and so it's going to be a journey clearly if you're starting out something new it it makes sense to develop it as a cloud native application because it gives you the flexibility to run it anywhere, manage it better, and also gives you 
the levels of abstraction that you need to not have to worry about so many things underneath that you previously may have had to worry about now with all the levels of abstractions and the management the levels provide like with kubernetes and the operating system down below and all that that you can run anywhere that gives you that flexibility so if you're starting off something new that makes sense but if you already have a set of applications that are running and you currently don't have the investment budgets to modernize them or to migrate them to cloud then you still have those applications and you still need to be able to manage them and get your business going. So does that mean that those applications, those existing applications are also in scope for a discipline like AI ops? Oh, absolutely. If all we did was to manage applications that only run on cloud native, then we would be only addressing small percentage of our clients' problems, right? Maybe at most 20% of our clients' workloads and applications are running on cloud, if that in fact, a good chunk of them are still either virtual, running on virtualized or traditional environments. And so our um, uh, design philosophy has been that, you know, we have to meet clients where they are and help solve their problems. And over time, as they get to, you know, migrating and uh, modernizing their applications, we should be able to help them along the way in that journey too. But uh, absolutely being able to monitor, manage the applications that are not cloud native is very much in scope for AI ops. Okay. Maybe we should just dive into that a little deeper in terms of what is AI ops anyway? I mean, so obviously it's an operational model that uses AI, but you know, what, what does that mean in concrete terms? Yeah, AI ops is a, is a term that was coined by Forrester. It could be interpreted in different ways, but the way you know we, we work with it and th- that particular term is that it means you're applying AI to the operations management of your IT systems. What does, first let's start with, let's put AI for aside for the time being. If you just look at IT operations management, what does it mean? If we achieve the North Star, what is the North Star? If, if you did everything right, the IT systems that you are developing and deploying, which are running, should be self-monitoring, self-healing, self-managing. So assuming that you did a good job with building it by following good software development processes and you have deployed it in the production environment in whatever environment you chose, you know, the cloud or virtualized or the traditional environment, the ideal goal is that these systems are self-managing and they're available, they're reliable, they're auto-scaling and they have zero downtime. That's the North Star. Now, IT operations management is all about really what are the practical steps that one can take to work towards getting to that goal. So it means in order to be able to self-manage, self-heal, and self-monitor, first thing you got to be able to do is you know where the what all the vitals are. That is, observe the data, observe the environment. So it's about application performance monitoring, observing the data in the environment, seeing everything, and then knowing when health metrics are going about the thresholds. It's exactly like how our human body functions. You know, we go for a physical checkup annually, we we check our vitals and we make sure everything is doing well. And if certain things are kind of getting to the upper range and we want to take proactive actions by, you know, changing our diet or exercise and those sort of things, right? So similar to that, observe everything, see, look at the health checks. Then the next step is take proactive actions. As I was saying, if your sugar levels in your blood are rising, then, you know, you take exercise more and change your diet and those sort of things. So that's like predicting things that bad things are going to happen. 
But then up to this point, that sounds to me like it's fairly static, right? Or I'm, I guess I'm beginning to wonder where the intelligent piece to it is. Because if all there is to, you know, take auto scaling as, as an example, if I see all the utilization of my system is going above the threshold, say 80%, so add more capacity. That's a static rule, so to speak, that, that I can define. Right. So keep AI for the moment side. Uh, okay. what, what I want to first define is what is IT operations management? So you want to be able to observe everything. Thing. Then you want to be able to detect when problems occur or predict before they occur. Then as and when the problems are occurring or detected, you want to be able to diagnose them. Then you want to be able to remediate and act on those remediations, make sure that everything is you know back up and running normal. That is in a mode where you are detecting or even predicting problems. Ideally, if you really want to avoid all these problems, just the way humans do, if you, you eat well, if you sleep well, and if you exercise well, in general, your health will be good, right? So if you follow good software development, practices, if you make sure that you are writing your code well, testing them well, and make sure that you're not promoting poor quality artifacts from one step to the other, the actual application that you're developing and deploying itself is going to be of high quality, and therefore, it's less likely to make mistakes. So this is the next step of IT operations management, which is about proactively avoiding issues from happening. If you think about what is the problem, whose problem are we solving part of IT ops management? When my house is on fire, when there is a problem, you know, you want to be able to put out the fire, reactive incident management, detect a problem, diagnose it, remediate. I want to be able to predict it. If I can catch these problems before and it gives me enough buffer time to act on them. And if I can act before they actually become major incidents, even better. But if I can prevent them in the first place, nothing like it. That's the best way to avoid a problem. Now, if you think of these three as as what we are trying to achieve for IT operations managers, also sometimes referred to as site reliability engineers or SREs, this is what is IT operations management. So now let's bring in AI. How can AI really help each one of these places? If you look at just the observing the data, part of it. Observation itself is, you know, connecting hoses and, you know, monitoring the metrics and so on. But observation also includes data like logs and traces and those sort of things. If you specifically look at logs, you know, they are semi-structured data. They have some structured information that tell us, you know, who, which service component is writing it, the date, timestamp and, and those sort of things. But it also has useful information about warnings, errors, and, and sometimes even the whole SQL statements embedded in them that would be very helpful in debugging or diagnosing. So there are logs which are part of observing, but they are very hard to process. You cannot just write static rules because there are patterns of logs that may tell you different things and such. You have to do processing and parsing of those logs and you know detect anomalies from those logs. That is one aspect where not much work has been done, it, although it is being looked at more now than before. Metrics are something that everybody looked at because they're pretty structured and you can set those thresholds like you're saying. Even there, I would argue that writing thresholds is a problematic business to be in because if you scale an application, you got to make sure you go back up and adjust those uh, thresholds and all that. So they start to become cumbersome to manage and maintain. The best way to deal with it is actually let the system figure out what is the normal behavior and therefore based on that to determine what is abnormal, right? So you would rather want the system to be dynamically learning those thresholds itself rather than you having to sit there and manage them, maintain them for every iteration of upgrade that you make and so on. But that requires that you take a baseline, right? Before you can detect an anormal situation, you have to get a baseline of what normal is so that you can predict that something's not right. 
Yes, absolutely. That is the case. And for that, what the system can do is to observe. When you turn it on, it, it can just sit and observe for a few minutes, few hours, few days, whatever is reasonable. Likely st get started with observing the environment for a few minutes and say that, okay, let me just first assume that this is normal and I'll start to make some predictions. And as and when I'm collecting more data, I'm seeing more data, I'm going to keep on updating my reference baseline. And when I have sufficient amount of our data or time has passed, then you can look at patterns that look anomalous and and, uh, treat them as probably anomalous periods and discard them and update your baseline to reflect more normal behavior. Assuming that the application is written reasonably well, there should be more normal period than abnormal periods. Therefore, there should be more of that data that the system can learn and tune itself from to learn what is up to, to learn what's normal and therefore from that predict what is abnormal. So that's one part of it. So this whole area of not having to manage thresholds, even with structured data and getting into the depths of unstructured data that uh, logs and be able to predict and detect anomalies in that's one aspect where AI can help, which is what one of the aspects that you know we are looking at and building models for in AI apps as well. Then as you keep going further in the process of what an SRE would do after detecting an anomaly, SRE would have to diagnose the problem. Uh, multiple issues and signals are coming from multiple sources, say logs are saying something, metrics are saying something. Are they both referring to the same problem or not? Should we now be alerting an SRE with each one of these anomalies that it's detecting or should we be deduplicating them, grouping? them and doing some post-processing to see which one of these actually require action and which one of these, they're anomalous, but they may not require action. Therefore, suppress them for later viewing, but don't wake them up at 3 a.m. in the morning. So those kinds of things and learning those rules is an AI problem too, because, you know, yes, the users are best positioned to tell us what is actually action-worthy, what is not initially, but they can't be sitting and teaching that to the system all the time. System has to be smart based on the action which ones they're acting on, which ones they're rejecting, learn from that user feedback and continuously keep learning and improve over time to get to a point where it's working in a more automated fashion with less human involvement and human burden. So that's another aspect of AI. That's human in the loop AI. And there are several other aspects in between that I, that in, that I didn't get into the details of, which include the diagnosis part of it, which is all about, you know, how do you pinpoint where the problem is? And when multiple services are going down, if service A, service B, service C, all of them are raising alerts how do you know which one is the root cause and what are all the impacted components and if you have the application dependency graph or topology of the whole application infrastructure environment then you can do graph traversal and some kind of a severity prioritization based on that determine the probable root cause so this is an ai problem too so now you move on to after detecting and diagnosis to remediation okay what do i do to fix this problem i agreed with the, the diagnosis and here again i always draw the the health analogy when you go to a doctor with a bunch of symptoms, your nose is running, you have fever, you have chills, doctor would match it to a known set of treatments that has worked for other patients and give you recommendations. If it is flu, just take rest, drink more water. If it is some kind of bacterial infection, maybe antibiotic, what other previous medical conditions does this patient have based on that prescribe the right kind of treatment? Exactly the same thing. If in, in the case of a doctor, doctor is retrieving it from his knowledge base, which is brain, basically. Whereas here, we can rely upon previous incidents tickets and records that are available and from that match the symptoms of the current problem to extract what actions were taken in the past what what worked what did not work prioritize the relevant ones present those and link that to specific executable scripts or runbooks that can be run so that the problem can be remediated so throughout this process there is ai that's playing in every step along the way with the option for human in the loop to further fine tune the model i would say so that is the opportunity of ai in it operations management okay
Shine. I have a couple of questions on this. So one is a very simple one. At what point does it turn an anomaly into a normal state? So in other words, let's assume, and you mentioned log as the example, and, and we were just exploring that the other day with one of our demo environments where we saw error messages and they produced an anomaly alert. And we still haven't gotten quite to the bottom of this, but then it looked like at some point in time, they stopped being flagged as anomalies. So we were suspecting that maybe the system has seen so many of these that it now considers them normal. So kind of where do, where do you draw the line there? How does that work? In general, if it has learned what is normal behavior correctly, even if the same abnormal behavior is, is getting exhibited for a continual period of time, it should still be flagging it. And okay. it it should still be flagging it until such a time as that particular whatever that caused the problem, that metric is now showing healthy signs and therefore it stopped flagging it as an anomaly. That's how it should work. If it stopped flagging it and it, the actual anomaly is still continuing, it is possible that the algorithm misread, depending on the kind of algorithm, that it updated its baseline incorrectly based on what it has seen because it has gone on for enough time. If let's say a log anomaly system is sitting in an environment, from the time it's starts, the baseline keeps moving and with different kinds of stratified sampling techniques that we can implement. It should have enough smarts to have a sense of what are anomalous periods and just discard those and keep its reference baseline to be reflective of more normal period. Now, if that is not the case, then I would say it's it's a bug in the system or it, it just needs more refinement in the way it's computing the baseline. But in a correctly implemented log anomaly prediction environment, it should know what is an anomaly and therefore it should continue to Either either that or if depending on the design of it, it could say, here is the start of it. I'm not going to bother you with everything. But until I tell you that it has ended, assume that it is continuing. I'm just not going to keep on bugging you with new flags. One of the design choices. Okay. Yeah. And it could be that we're just doing something wrong. Like I said, we're just um, playing around with it a little bit. The other question I wanted to ask is you, you mentioned that we look at systems and we try to learn from observed behavior. We try to determine not only what is abnormal, but also how to deal with it. Now, if I think of, say, IBM software offerings, for example, we run these offerings as managed services in our own cloud. So we operate our own software mm -hmm. and we learn a lot from that, right? So is it thinkable at least that we could then try to have models that are pre-trained based on our own experience that we can then give to our customers to take advantage of so that the quality of the model is better? Does that make any sense? Yes. So there is a two-part answer to that. There are some types of applications that we can pre-train models for and some that we cannot pre-train models for. So let me clarify which ones are those are. The ones that we can pre-train models for are the traditional middleware type of products, which are very standard and are stable and have very good documentation about when something goes wrong in those products, what is the specific error code or the warning or the message that the system will write in its logs and what action to take. So for example, if you take WebSphere application server or WebSphere suite of products, you know, very stable, say DB2, you know, similarly, you know, other vendor products like Oracle, some of the SAP products, which have been around for quite some time, very stable and have very well done documentation on all of the error codes, messages and all that, uh, logs and and such. Those ones can be pre-trained. We can out of the box bring some of those pre-trained models so that customers don't have to teach or we don't have to incur the learning time and burden in each client's environment for something that is publicly available or pretty standard. So that is the pre-trained part of it. 
The ones that we cannot pre-train, the second category, are the ones that correspond to customer's own applications. So let's say a customer has written their own airline reservation system and it's running on WebSphere, DB2, and uh, underneath, uh, you know, maybe it's virtualized, probably not cloud native. Let's say that's the environment that the client has. That particular airline ticket reservation system code, we have never seen it before. It is probably specific to that particular client or that it is not publicly known as to how it writes errors and what all systems it interacts with behind the scenes, what all backend systems it interacts with within clients environment and all that for that we don't have any data to pre-train models with so what we the best we can do is to pre-train the features and the features of the ai models which are you know when you tokenize it you know it understands enough of the vocabulary of the it domain to create the right kind of word vectors which will help in you know the models predictions and all the best we can do is to do that but take the basically the algorithms and let them learn from the environment within the client ecosystem as to what is normal for those applications and what is abnormal so that's why there are two kinds. Some we can pre-train, some we cannot. Okay, that makes sense. I want to kind of pick up on something somewhat different. I mentioned earlier that you have your Wikipedia page and it talks about your work on tone analyzer and related technologies. And what that basically is and why I want to poke on it a little bit is that when we talk about AI ops and everything we've discussed pretty much so far was about operating machines, right? Software, programs. I think there's an interesting angle when we start applying AI to humans, to people. And that is obviously work you've done before and it raises some questions of ethics and I guess ethics in, in the space of AI are an important element anyway. So I'm just curious if you had some comments on that as you were working on something that analyzes human writings, for example, and deducts behavior and characteristics from that. Now, how much of an ethics angle and concern is there? So first of all, I have to update my Wikipedia page. I After it, somebody created it, I never went back to it to update it. <laughs> so tone analyzer. What we wanted to do when we started working on it was to build those tone detection mechanisms that would be helpful in solving specific use cases. The use case that we had in mind was customer support conversations. So if you have chatbots that are interacting with humans in solving whatever customer support kinds of scenario problems, and in those interactions, be it voice-enabled interaction or text-based interaction, if we get to a point where customers are expressing frustration saying, do you even understand what I'm saying? I'm having this problem for the fourth time. So much of my time is getting lost trying to you know, diagnose this and this and that. Understanding that communication tone and responding in the response that chatbot comes back with incorporating that could be a step toward building more natural interfaces naturally interactable interfaces to AI systems so that was the goal we started out with processing customer support conversations and say is the customer expressing frustration or satisfaction or anger some of them start to get very subtle between some anger and frustration and those sort of things but some of those tones and is the, the customer support agent, if it is a human versus chatbot, is it really showing empathy? Is it really acknowledging the, the frustration and saying something that you know makes the conversation go smoother? So those are the kinds of tones that we built the models for and we deployed and, and they've been used in several customer support conversation scenarios, chatbots by different clients in different scenarios. Now, coming back to the ethics part of it, it depends as with anything, there is always that side of uh, ethical angle to it. I know getting into the privacy of the user and would that introduce biases and uh, all of those things. Those are all genuine, genuine questions. 
instance, it is a tool that's available. How do you put that tool to use is up to the application that is using this service or the tool. Here is an example. You have a hammer. You can use that hammer to put a nail in the wall and hang a painting, or you can use that hammer to go bang on somebody's head and break that person's skull. So the question is, do you say it's an ethical question to build a hammer? Would the hardware company that's selling it, should that be concerned about it? Well, we, we document what is an ethical use of a hammer. And hopefully people will use it for that. And there should be some checks and balances, like how if you go break somebody's you know skull with that hammer, there will be police, they'll put you in jail and you know, your life is ruined. And that will be a deterrent for using it for the wrong uses, right? Similarly, in AI and in applications that they're put to use, if you have enough checks and balances on who it is for, and there is enough transparency that is required either by regulations or by the end customers, that will put right checks and balances in the way it gets used. And hopefully then there will be proper use of any of these technologies. So it's no different than any other piece of technology that can be used for good or bad, I would argue. Okay, interesting. I feel like I could talk about this topic all day, but we don't have all day. And in fact, we've already run out of time here, but I don't want to close without asking what it is, something you're currently working on or working with, or that you would like to work with, kind of what's cool in, in your life right now that makes you want to get up in the morning and, and come to work? There is what's cool and there is what's real. I want to talk about both because both of them excite me equally. What's cool is really that not start off. How can we really achieve the full potential and capacity of AI for solving the specific problem that I'm looking at presently in my work, which is the IT operations management. So which is how can we in an incremental and stepwise manner get towards that self-healing, self-managing IT systems? That's the exciting part. You know, that includes all the things that I talked about, proactive, reactive, and in proactive, I didn't spend much time about, you know, how do you avoid issues from happening by looking at the whole processes and risk prediction and all that. And by the way, that's another another question I actually meant to ask you of, of your description of what AI ops is and the various elements. How much of that is vision and how much of that can be done today? So that's an excellent question. That's a great segue to the what's real, what can be done. The second part of that excites me because while there is so much potential and while there is a lot that we can do and we, we as a community in AI are doing, the practical and real aspects of it, they ground you every day because, you know, these are things like, hey, you know what? Yes, you can have the best anomaly detection algorithm built in. But if you haven't taken into account all the gazillion formats in which logs can be written by applications, you will get tripped up in your pre-processing step and badly processed, incorrectly processed data gets to log anomaly prediction. They'll do all kinds of random things and, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You get all kinds of false positives and crazy predictions. You know, that could be something as silly as XML formats are not processed, nested JSONs are not processed and those sort of things. So the key point, if I elevate all of these mundane things that we run into is that there is tremendous amount of hard work to build practical working systems that solve real problems on different kinds of data, the heterogeneity of data and the formats and the quality of the data that we have to deal with and all that. So there, it's one thing to build algorithms that help you get to the vision towards that North Star and, and what AI can do. And it's another thing to really make the rest of the whole practical systems come together to really solve something practical, because that's what really, in the end, moves the bar, moves the needle for the industry. And so many interesting problems in data, data selection, data quality, data transformations, AI models and bias and drifts. And these are all things that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis to make 
make that work. And so I would say both the vision is what is exciting that at least we're moving towards it. But actually, when something really works for a customer and on their data set, and you see the system actually making the right predictions and helping them catch real problems ahead, you know, a few hours ahead, few days ahead, that excitement, that joy that comes with it, that yes, what we have built actually works for a client, nothing beats it. It's, it's something really simple. It's instant gratification, but there is a lot of hard work that goes into building it. And I'm sure everybody who is in software industry understands what it takes to build scalable systems that clients want to run on SaaS and different clouds and you know, on-prem knows the hard work that's involved in it. So both of them are exciting for me. And that's what gets me excited these days. Not You can't use the phrase come to work, but I would say open my laptop and <laughs> sit in my home office and get to work. Right. Virtually come to work. Exactly. Okay. Well, like I said, we're out of time here. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. This was great insight. Thank you, Andre. Thanks for asking insightful questions. And it's been fun talking to you about what I live, breathe every day. All right. Great. Okay. Thanks again. And for the rest of you, thanks for listening. And I hope to see you all soon.